Welcome to the Women in Family Law podcast. I'm Hannah Markham, the chair of the association. Women in Family Law connects, encourages and promotes professional women across the field of family law in England and Wales. We offer advice, support and mentoring. And of course, these podcasts. Well, welcome, everybody. I'm delighted to be joined this afternoon by Jane Croft. Jane has been a journalist at the Financial Times for 23 years. She was banking correspondent covering the 2008 financial crisis, including the near collapse of the Royal Bank of Scotland, HBOS and Northern Rock. Since late 2009, she has been the FT's law courts correspondent, covering all kinds of cases, ranging from big money divorces to employment lawsuits and criminal cases, which have ranged from the lawsuit brought by Roman Abramovich against Boris Borisovsky to the Supreme Court's 2019 prorogation of Parliament ruling. So, huge amount of experience doing all of these very interesting cases, Jane. I think to start off with, I'd like to ask you about how you got here. Are you a lawyer by training? I'm not actually a lawyer, no. I basically studied Latin and English at university and did some journalism as well, and then got offered a job on a regional newspaper, which I took and did that for a few years, and then worked on another regional newspaper. And then at the time, the internet was just developing, really. So the FT was starting up an internet site, a website. So I joined them then. Basically, I've done lots of different jobs since then. But yes, I came in through the sort of internet route, really. So no sort of legal training at all. Although obviously I did some legal training to do with media, because obviously all journalists usually do. But that's the only legal training I've ever done. And so what types of court cases do you cover? Oh, it's a huge variety. So it can be anything from a criminal case. So this week, for example, I've been covering the money laundering case involving NatWest. So, you know, the £700,000 of cash being carried in bin bags through a shopping centre to a NatWest branch. So, you know, that's a criminal case where NatWest was fined, you know, for £264 million. I also cover things like big money divorce cases. I'll cover judicial review cases. I will cover employment cases, just any sort of legal case, really, and also cover kind of a little bit as well, the intersection of kind of politics and the law. So things like the Human Rights Act and some of the plans the government's got for it or judicial review reform, that type of thing. And why do you think journalists dub London as the divorce capital of the world? Is this a true description from what you've seen? I'm interested to hear your view as a journalist, having my own private views as a solicitor. So what's your view, Jane? I think it's not a bad description. I mean, some of the sort of cases that we see are basically the globetrotting kind of wealthy bringing their disputes to London because they've got a connection with England. So it could be a home here, having children at school here, something of that kind. But, you know, some of the kind of cases that we see, like, for example, I'm thinking of the Ahmedov case, where Tatiana Ahmedov received, you know, £453 million in 2016. And obviously, sort of both parties in that case were, you know, international globetrotting super rich, really. So, you know, some cases obviously are kind of 
British wealthy cases, but a lot of them are international cases, big money cases, where, as I say, you know, Russian oligarchs maybe got a home here and they decide to get divorced here. And, and obviously as well, the other thing is the generosity of the English system, because obviously it's seen as it being giving incredibly generous awards to non-working spouses and dividing the wealth equally. Whereas obviously other jurisdictions, and I'm sure you know this far better than I do, will obviously have kind of prenups or that type of thing. I totally agree. I think it's about the discretion of the court and the ability of people to, as it were, seize this jurisdiction and to come here. So that's why it's, and I think it continues notwithstanding Brexit. So I think people are concerned about that, but I think it still continues. And just moving on to another topic, which I think is a really fascinating topic, and I think we're going to see this play out more and more, the idea of transparency. As you know, the president of the family division, Andrew McFarlane, has talked about opening up the family courts to greater transparency. How do you think, as a journalist, that will work in practice? And what are the obstacles that you think you, journalists, will face in covering the family courts? Um, Well, at the moment, there are quite a lot of obstacles. I mean, journalists can sit in the family courts and sit in family cases, but it's very, very difficult to report them because of the kind of complexity of the reporting restrictions. So it's really difficult to actually report something. I think what McFarlane is proposing is that in future, that 10% of the court's rulings are published, which is obviously not happening at the moment. There will be anonymity of children and their families, but the general issues will be able to be reported. So it will basically mean that more work of the family courts will be able to be getting the public domain. And I think this will kind of actually help this kind of perception of the family courts as a sort of secret court where people don't really understand how decisions are made. And obviously this is very important for public law cases where children are taken into local authority care and nobody perhaps really understands why or why you know, there's been this intervention. And it's one of the most draconian things that the state can do is to take away children from their parents. So I think it will help open up the courts to transparency whilst also protecting the privacy of some of these very vulnerable children. I think in big money divorce cases, it will be slightly different. So for example, in the financial remedy cases, I think there will be greater reporting of the types of assets that the couples are fighting over. And a little bit of kind of discussion about you know, how much the case is worth, what's in dispute, that type of thing, which I think will be helpful because obviously some cases at the moment are anonymized. So I think that again will be quite helpful. So I think it will be quite a big change. And I think it's quite a brave move by the president to do this, because I think, as he said before, this was kind of marked in the too difficult to do box for quite a long time by his predecessors. So it'll be interesting to see how it pans out. I agree. And it'd be interesting to see the extent to which it actually happens after various consultations, etc. So I think that's one for us to watch in 2022. Uh, And just going back, how do you think the courts have fared in the pandemic? Well, I think they've actually fared quite well, to be honest with you. I mean, obviously, there was a period at the very start of 2020, where things like jury trials and criminal cases had to be adjourned because of the kind of risk of COVID. So basically, criminal cases, there are some cases which have happened via CVP online. And I think also, for example, the civil courts have done incredibly well, I think, using remote technology and remote cases. 
even in sort of very complex cases. I think it's been more difficult for the family courts because I know there's been various reports saying that it's been difficult, I think, for some parents to basically find privacy to join some of these hearings. And some of these hearings, you know, if your child has been taken away from you or something like that, you know, obviously it's much better if you're there in person than trying to join remotely. And there was one report which I found was quite shocking, which was, I think was where I think her mother had had to kind of go into the garden and actually try to join the court just to get some privacy. There was no other place for her to do this. So I think in some ways, I think that the remote courts have been good in some areas of the law, but perhaps not in others. Yeah, I think I agree. Uh, Another, and this is, I think, quite a controversial topic, is the withdrawal of legal aid. As we know, legal aid was withdrawn from a huge slew of civil cases in 2013 under LASPO. What impact do you think that has had on the courts, particularly the family courts? Yeah, I think it's mostly impacted, actually, the family courts, because you're seeing huge numbers of kind of litigants in person who can't afford a lawyer themselves, who can't now get legal aid, and they're basically sort of trying to represent themselves. So certainly family judges have said to me that it, the cases often take longer because often the litigants don't really understand how the cases work. They don't have any paperwork. It's very, very difficult for them. And also, I think the other thing about family cases is people get very emotional as well. If you're representing yourself and the stakes are very, very high if it involves your child, then obviously I think that the, it is very difficult to, you know, to present your case as a lawyer would in an, in an impartial way. So I think you know, it has been very difficult, I think, in the family courts, but it has had an impact on civil courts as well. So, for example, I recently went to a county court where I sat in on a housing possession desk, where, which is the kind of last stop, really, where people go before they go to county court and potentially get their homes taken away from them or get, get evicted or whatever. And, you know, this is the kind of last area where you can get legal aid if you're kind of facing a risk of eviction. But, you know, you can't get legal aid at a kind of earlier stage. So I think it has had an impact in lots of different areas of kind of civil law. And lots of kind of people have struggled because they haven't been able to get this advice that they need to. Yeah, no, I, I agree. What do you see as the main problems facing the court system at the moment? I think the main problem is probably in the criminal courts. There's a huge backlog of criminal cases at the moment. I think it's it's just under sort of 60,000. And it's obviously been caused partly by the pandemic because it's been very difficult to get lots of these multi-handed cases through the criminal courts because of things like social distancing. So it's quite hard to kind of have, you know, enough courtrooms for these sorts of cases. So there's been a kind of battle that's built up over the past sort of 18 months or so. But actually, even before that, there was a backlog because the number of sitting days that were allocated to the criminal courts in 2019-20 was lower than actually the number of cases coming in. So even at the start of the pandemic, there was a bit of a backlog and lots of courts were sitting. Now we've got a situation where courts are able to sit unlimited sitting days. So, you know, judges are able to hear cases, but there is still an issue because there's not potentially enough criminal barristers to prosecute and defend some of these cases because a lot of the criminal barristers have some of them have actually left the the, the criminal bar because again you know the rates that they're being paid under legal aid are very low and you know a lot of them haven't been able to make a living 
I mean, if you're a kind of junior barrister just starting out, you can be on as little as £12,000 a year. And that's in London as well. And you've probably got a little student debt from going through your courses. So being a kind of criminal barrister, particularly in the junior end of the law, is really difficult at the moment. Yes, I think it's endemic across the whole justice system in a way I think they have got real problems and it'll be interesting to see how the Ministry of Justice deals with all of these things I suppose I feel on a a side note very lucky that we have family law arbitration because at least there is another system that people can use in family law to sort of get out of the court system if you do find yourself log jammed in the court system but I suppose there are discussions then about how fair that is but that's for another day. There have been a lot of articles written about law firms salary wars and the competition to attract young lawyers. What things are you seeing that law firms are doing to retain their talent? Well they're doing all sorts of things I mean obviously pay is a big issue you know there's a kind of increasing amount of kind of law firms that are offering you know, huge salaries to kind of newly qualified lawyers and associates. And there's a lot of kind of moving around at the moment amongst kind of young lawyers. But they are also doing lots of other things as well. I think they do recognise that the legal profession is, you know, it's very much a hard driving profession. You know, people work very long hours. You know, if you're kind of in some teams, like, for example, uh, mergers and acquisitions, you can be doing a lot of kind of all-nighter work, a lot of deal work. And obviously there has been a lot of kind of corporate deals over the last 12 months or so. So I think law firms are doing more to kind of help retain their lawyers. They're doing things like wellness schemes. There's a lot more awareness of things like mental health. You know, they're offering lots of other benefits as well. I think there's one firm that's sort of offering things like the ability to freeze your eggs if you're a woman and, you know, to help with, you know, fertility issues and things like that. So they're they're doing sort of lots of things because I think they recognise that actually, you know, lawyers have got lots of options these days. They don't have to work in private practice. Lawyers can also work in-house. And often if you're kind of working for a big corporate, you do have all the kind of perks of working for a big corporate. So you've got things like flexible working, you've got things like good pensions, you know, there's a lot of kind of pros of going in-house. So I think private practice has kind of woken up to this and realised to retain talent, it's going to have to kind of offer more to lawyers. And I think also lawyers as well, uh, younger lawyers are probably also looking for a sense of purpose as well, doing kind of worthwhile work. So I think there's a sort of a recognition as well that some lawyers also want to do more pro bono work, more kind of worthwhile things as well. So I think, you know, it is changing. I absolutely agree. And I think that part of that change is the sort of concertina effect of the pandemic where we've changed sort of almost overnight we've pivoted to flexible working in a way that you couldn't have imagined pre the pandemic so there has been quite a big shift and I feel as though people are now moving faster and faster and faster and I hope in a really positive way many young associates I talk to don't really see partnership as the holy grail they are relaxed about whether or not they're going to become partners So I think there has been quite a big shift in how people perceive the world of work. Yeah, I agree. I mean, partnership was always the kind of, it was always the the thing people aimed for, wasn't it? I think when you kind of started out as a career, as a lawyer, but I think people have just got so many more options nowadays. You know, if you're a lawyer, you've got lots of other options and you don't have to kind of go for that partnership track, particularly if you're kind of female and you want to balance, you know, family life and work life as well. If you want to go in-house, you're probably able to do that much more easily. Yeah. And do you think the legal profession needs to do more to help improve diversity? 
I think it does. I think there is still more to do in terms of improving the number of female partners, although I know a lot of the big law firms have now got female managing partners, which is good. But I think also just also improving ethnic diversity and also improving social diversity as well, because I think a lot of the very big law firms have traditionally recruited from Russell Group universities, and there's a lot of perception that often lawyers go to private school and things like that. So I think I think it's important that law firms look at this and actually try and recruit from a much wider base, which reflects society more. And I think you do see it as well in the bar. There's a perception at the bar and at barristers that there is there needs to be more progress on social mobility and also on ethnic and gender diversity as well. Yes, I think all of those topics, everyone's sort of woken up to perhaps gender diversity was the first and is being dealt with, but certainly ethnic and more recently social mobility. But I think there are some very good schemes across a number of law firms to try and enhance the social mobility of the people that they're taking on to ensure better reflection, as you say, of society as a whole. So, again, that's one to watch. We'll have to see what happens in the next five to 10 years. And how do you think technology will transform the courts or help transform the courts? I think there will be a lot more kind of virtual hearings. I also think as well, looking sort of longer term, I mean, you talk to someone like Professor Richard Suskin, who is very kind of focused on sort of technology, and he sort of questions whether or not actually, in some ways that some future disputes may actually not go through the courts at all they could perhaps be settled through some sort of mediation process or if you could for example dealing with a blockchain dispute there may be very little dispute about the facts of the case so it may be kind of arbitrated in a different way and I think again the master of the rules Sir Geoffrey Boss is also looking at ways of filtering cases and taking some of the very small claims out of the court system. So I think there's going to be a lot of kind of changes in the next sort of 10 to 15 years. I mean, obviously, sort of law has been kind of in some ways behind the curve with technology. So I think it's sort of now catching up. And as I say, if you've kind of got things like blockchain, where things are indelibly on a sort of ledger, it's very difficult to see how that sort of can be disputed in many. Yeah, absolutely fascinating. I don't think I've ever had a guest on my podcast and talked about such wide ranging topics. And I think that's just indicative of the work that you do, Jane. And I'm really grateful to you for coming to chat to me today. We've covered so many different areas. And I think we both acknowledge that there's a lot to look out for in the future. It'd be really interesting to see how so many of these things develop. So thanks very much for joining me. Thanks very much. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Women in Family Law podcast. Our theme music is Low Tide by Sam Hare, found on Spotify. Please visit our website, womeninfamilylaw.net, or follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WIFLaw and follow, rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts.